You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Um, I am so excited to be here. I'm going to introduce myself in a minute, but I think in the vein, just leaving worship, I wanted to highlight something. I, you know, it, God could not have orchestrated that better um, because of the nature of what I wanted to share um, to this evening with you. And um, moving from that place of holiness into being aware that our hearts need to be broken open to receive more of the Holy One. And then from that place, we're just led into waiting. And I, I don't think um, Tyler's in here, but man, it's brave as a leader to pause like that. It takes a lot of courage because it, 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 it can be real awkward and you feel it. It's a risk. Um, and so I honor him for, for making that step. Yeah, good job, Tyler, wherever you are. Um, but it's interesting that we took that flow in worship because that actually was the progression that my life took personally that led me to um, the revelation um, and the awareness, just kind of the, the relearning of something that I wanted to share this evening um, with you guys, and I shared it in Dallas a couple of weeks ago. But um, the scripture says <clears throat> that sometimes we're to be a little weary of people that go on and on about their visions and get puffed up about the encounters that they've had. And I don't want to do that, but I feel really prompted by God to share an encounter with you. Is that okay? Okay. <clears throat> um, this encounter happened uh, several, um, well, it was probably... Uh, the end of last fall. And so I'm the campus pastor in Dallas. Again, I'll introduce myself and I have some pictures for you guys in a minute. Um, but uh, I've been in that position now for two years, but I've been at the upper room since 2012 doing kind of, I was like the pastor of nuts and bolts forever, right? Like I just did anything and everything. And so uh, I hadn't really, um, I'd just been running really hard and um, been trying to be really faithful. And we exploded, you know, in 2018, our, we just grew really quick and our heads were all spinning and um, I got really tired, to be perfectly honest with you. And I, in a house of prayer and in a place like Upper Room, whose leadership are so incredible. I mean, like Michael and Larissa fight for the hearts of people. Um, but just in the context of um, a lot of performance stuff in me that I didn't know that I had and a lot of um, my own um, just trying to impress people, <laughs> you know, make people like me, whatever, I was running really hard and I got really, really tired. And some way, somewhere along the way, I realized that I had completely neglected God. Like, I had traded in ministry for intimacy with Jesus in a place like Upper Room. And I was in such a dry season in, in, on the inside. And um, it was late one night. I could not sleep. And I was sitting out. Uh, I cry a lot when I feel God, so I may cry. I'm just warning you. Um, <laughs> um, maybe that's a cue to get some tissues. I don't know. But um, no, I, uh, I was sitting out in the backyard, and um, it was probably close to midnight, and I was like, God, like, I need you. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where you went, but I just feel so in over my head. Like, I feel so in over my head. I'm, you know, 36, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do this thing, but I just am like, ah. Um, and this is hard to describe, but... I, I felt aware that God, the presence of God, was in the wind. I just, it was a subtle, subtle, subtle breeze in the fall, and there's a lot of crickets and insect noises and all of this stuff, and it was actually a really loud night. I live really close to White Rock Lake, my wife and I do, so there's a lot of bugs. <laughs> and so it was just this kind of like loud, reverberating bug noise and this subtle breeze, and I just became aware, like reminded, you're in the, the whisper, you're in the breeze, and though I don't, I feel like you've left me and I don't know what's going on, I believe that you're here, you're in, you're in the air. And as I sat there, aware of that, I just said, I thank you. I thank you that though I don't feel you or see you or know you, like, 
in this moment, you just seem hidden in darkness. I thank you that you're as near as ever. And I kid you not, what began this journey of discovering something that I'll share in a minute, this rush of wind, like physical wind, completely engulfed me. And I heard the scripture in Isaiah for the, um, the Holy One has gotten off his throne, let the earth be silent before him. And the presence of God in his holiness hit me, and every single bug went quiet. The earth went physically silent, and I hit the ground saying, holy, 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 holy. And I, I just remember thinking, I am so thankful I'm not wearing shoes. I don't know why I was, I was barefoot, but I just knew this is holy, and I just wept on my porch in this holy encounter with God, and I realized something in this moment that um, in, in periods of dryness, like, it's a suddenly that, that wakes us up, right? But then, as I began to kind of recover from this encounter in the days and weeks afterwards, um, I began to go, okay, there's something, though, in how I'm operating that's really contributing to, like, being unhealthy. And um, I began to pray, like, break me open. Like, teach me your way. You say, come to me. And, uh, and so as I did, um, he uh, led me into slowing down, stopping, silence. Um, he led me into the Sabbath as a rhythm for my week. And that's what I actually want to want to talk to you about. I want to talk about the Sabbath. Now, I had a couple of... Uh, well, first, let me do this. Um, I want to introduce myself a little bit more because uh, a lot of you guys are probably new and have no idea who I am. So I am the campus pastor of Upper Room Dallas. That means that I oversee our day-to-day -day operations, our staff. Um, I uh, handle pastoral care along with a big a big team of amazing people. Um, and like I said, I've been doing that for two years. And uh, I came into the upper room in 2012, and I came fresh off the Hot Mess Express is what I say. I was like, <laughs> Joe, I miss that in Dallas, Joe. We, I was talking with somebody recently, and we're like, do you miss Joe's? Uh, and I was like, I do miss Joe's. Uh, like, dang, it's just not the same. Um, <laughs> I miss, we miss the Newtons in Dallas. Um, but <laughs> um, anyway, I came in off the, the Hot Mess Express. I was, I mean, in crazy rebellion, like not interested in God, really PO'd at church, did not like Christians. And um, I had a sovereign encounter. Again, it was a holy encounter. Uh, God just arrested me. I was home by myself. And he came as the Holy One of Israel and, and seared me right side up. I mean, it was a, a fear of the Lord encounter. It was beautiful and terrifying. Um, but I still, you know, was like, I don't know about church. And ended up four or five months later coming to, to Upper Room and um, been there ever since. Dove into the residency, then started working with the residency, then started directing the residency, and then took on a bunch of random jobs here and there. And I just sought to be faithful with um, what I had been interested with. Um, but I want to show you, I, I, I want to actually show you, um, I've been, uh, in addition to Upper Room, I actually have another um, church that I'm pastoring, and it's actually the primary church that I'm pastoring. Uh, and I want to show you, if you could uh, pull up picture number one. So I've been discipling this guy for 10 months, and <laughs> his name is Ellis, and um, <laughs> we are working on love, and love is kind, which means we don't hit the dog and we don't bite mommy. Um, and he is learning slowly, so you can pray for him. Uh, but that is my son, Ellis, and this is the rest of my church. Yay! <laughs> that's um, my wife, and that's Ellis a little bit younger. He looks like, like he's in pain, but he's laughing. Um, <laughs> Um, but we've, yeah, we've only grown one member in three years. So church growth analysts are saying that's not a good sign, but I feel pretty, I feel pretty good about it. Um, but in all seriousness, this is my primary ministry. Um, family uh, is where it begins. Uh, my 
primary church is my wife and my son and any future children and those in our extended spiritual family. I just want to tell you up front who I am. And I don't come from a ministry background at all. <laughs> like, at all. The complete opposite, actually. Uh, my wife does come from a ministry background, though. And, um, but I don't have to have come from it personally to have read the stories that ministry has a way of wrecking families. And that just not only breaks my heart, but it breaks the heart of God. Um, and so um, my discipleship, my ministry begins at home. It begins with my family. Um, and so they're my first church. And then in addition to that, I do a bunch of other stuff um, at Upper Room. Um, so that's just a little bit about me. Um, so this week, did you guys get hit by the crazy rain? Oh, my gosh. That was gnarly, right? So we bought a house in May of last year, um, first-time homeowners, which that's, you know, a learning curve. We had, like, a baby, and we bought a house all at the same time. It was, like, help us Jesus. I don't know what we were thinking. But um, we bought a house, and um, so interestingly enough, the Lord, uh, maybe this will make sense to you guys. It probably will, but um, the Lord speaks to me a lot through real-life parables, Does that make sense? Like the circumstances of my life seem to be outside of the scripture, the primary way that he teaches me about the kingdom. So whether I'm doing yard work or changing a diaper or having a difficult pastoral meeting, there's just these themes. If if I'm aware enough and paying attention enough, God's speaking through the circumstances of my life. So this this happened uh, this week. I, um, two things happened. One, we bought this house, and uh, it's a 1962 build, and, but it had been completely redone on the inside. It was beautiful, and we were, like, amazed that God worked it out to where we could get it. But the yard was gnarly. Like, they spent all of their creative juice and money, like, doing the inside, but the yard looked like a hot mess. It was like we're on a corner lot, and there was this, like, corner flower bed that had been neglected for God knows how long, and it was just... I mean, weeds, like, up to here. The bushes in the front were, like, the bushes that I think came with the house. So they were, like, you know, 50 years old. I mean, it was just, it was gross. It was really gross. And so the first year, I was like, okay, next spring, I am going to tackle the front yard. And then the following spring, the backyard, I'm going to make this place look nice, you know. And so I started working on um, the corner flower bed and um, labored to get all the weeds out and, bare dirt and then went to Home Depot and got some cool plants and I planted them and I put the mulch in and I like reveled in my conquering of the earth. You know, I'm like, yes, take that ugly quarter flower bed. And I was like, man, and neighbors were pulling in, like thanking us. They're like, that thing has looked ugly for decades. Like you're the gateway to the neighborhood. It gave us opportunity to testify about Jesus. It was awesome. I mean, like literally like 50 neighbors were like, thank you for fixing that flower bed. And so, but then all of a sudden, like a week went by, and I was driving into the house, and I was like, oh, no. There had, like, literally overnight, like, weeds, like, this tall had sprouted up, like, all over the place, grass, vines, like, it literally felt like it happened overnight, and I was like, what the heck? I thought the mulch was supposed to keep out the weeds, like, I thought that was, but no, I didn't put a weed barrier down. I didn't know. It was, you know, first time, whatever, landscaping. Didn't put a weed barrier down. So I had to go and buy a weed barrier, take chunks of mulch out, lay it, cut holes around the plants I had already sown, put the mulch back. I mean, it was so labor-intensive. Like, it was way more labor-intensive as, af- as if I had done it the right way the first time, right? So that happened. Didn't quite make, you know, wasn't thinking parable at the time. Then... You know, like the monsoon happens, and uh, I had uh, over the last two weekends now done the front flower beds, and I had taken all the shrubs out, you know, put pots and like built a raised bed. I mean, I, I was like, y'all would be proud. I should have brought pictures. Like it looks good. It looked good. It doesn't look good anymore now. Thank you, rain. I'll get to that. So, um, so anyway, I I was like taking pictures, like put on Instagram. <laughs> and um, and then it started pouring. And uh, we don't have gutters on the front of the house. And our house is south-facing, and the rains were coming in for, from the south. So I go, I'm the only one home, and I open the front door, and, like, literally there's, like, this much space before the water is going to start 
trying to come into the house. The whole flower beds had completely flooded. Mulch was everywhere. All the dirt and the pots was overflowed. Like, I was like, two days worth of work just went down the toilet. And I was like, what the heck? I'm like scooping water, you know, to try to keep it out of the front, the f coming in the front door. And the Lord spoke to me um, about barriers and gutters. And so what, something I'm really, really passionate about um, is, <clears throat> and convicted about, to be honest, is that as a leader um, in the church, I feel that our job is to lead, lead you, lead us into an encounter with Jesus, right? But m even more than that, we're called by God to equip you to live life in him. Not just to encounter him, but to live life in him. Because I've been changed by encounters. I just told you some. I have been completely transformed through encounters. But who in here would agree that encounters with God um, don't happen every single day? In, the, in those transformative ways. We hear his voice every day, all the time. We abide in him. We commune with him. We're friends with God. Crazy. But those radical, visceral, God-touched-me moments are rare. They are. And so in between these in amazing encounters, we live our life. And we've got to be equipped for living life in God. And I... I came in so excited early on about all these encounters, and but what has actually produced the most transformation in me into the likeness of Jesus um, has been learning to conform my life around his values and his way of living. Historically, these are called the spiritual disciplines. I don't like the term spiritual discipline because discipline sounds like going to the gym, and I don't like to do that. I don't like discipline. I'm naturally more of like, go with my gut, you know? Um, but I do like rhythm. I like routine, and so I call them spiritual rhythms, but that's just me. Um, but actually taking on spiritual disciplines has been what has contributed most to me becoming like Jesus. Um, and the disciplines... Things like prayer, which we do really well, fasting, silence, solitude, community, Sabbath. These things are like weed barriers and gutters. This way of living, this way of life that Jesus embodied is like a barrier for the distractions, the weeds that the scripture uses as an analogy are the cares of this life that choke out the seed of God in us. When we change how we live to adapt ourselves to his way of life, the way he embodied living, we get a natural weed barrier where because of the rhythm, the pace, and the value system of our life, day in and day out, not just when we're in this room or having an encounter, but when we're just going about our business, when we're in the grocery store, whatever, um, it, it protects us from... Um, and protects the beautiful things that God's put inside of us, the, the things he's planted inside of our soul. Um, and it's also, these, these spiritual disciplines are like a gutter. Um, I am convinced that God actually, when Ariel was, right before she started singing the flood, I could hear far off thunder. I heard it in my ears so much so that I thought, oh no, is it raining again? And I thought about my house, just being honest. I was like, crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like texting my wife. I'm like, is it raining? No, but I, I recognized, okay, no, this is, <laughs> this is in the spirit. I heard far off thunder and she began to sing about, he's coming in like a flood and I want to prophesy over this community. Um, don't be caught, caught off guard like we were. We didn't, we, we knew he intended to come, but we were caught off guard when his blessing came and all these people showed up and we were like, Bleh. we didn't have the gutter system in place yet. So use this time wisely to prepare yourselves because rain is coming. Um, but a gutter system, when the rain comes, it channels the force and the deluge of the rain. It channels it in a way that, um, that protects the foundation that um, you know, keeps things from flooding, from keeping the blessing of rain, which nourishes the earth, from becoming you know, a, a disaster for your house, 
right? And so spiritual disciplines are like a weed barrier in a gutter that both protect us but also funnel the power of, and presence of God that he wants to pour out on us. Um, and so like I started, I was saying, I realized I was really tired, had this holy encounter, began to cry out, Lord, you have to teach me how to do things differently. And the first discipline that he uh, really began to reveal to me, and it has absolutely changed me and my family, my first church, in ways that we're still discovering and can't quite describe, has been the Sabbath. Um, and the reason I found out that the Sabbath, like the, how I even got there from, from Holy Encounter to Sabbath, was because I began to go, okay, I had this holy encounter. That's how he chose to start this process of relearning how to live. <laughs> I better study holiness. And did you know the very first thing that God made holy wasn't Adam and Eve. It was time. The very first thing that God calls holy is time in the Sabbath. On the seventh day, he blessed it and he made it holy. Adam and Eve were good. All that he had created was good. But the Sabbath, time, was the first thing that he made holy. When I saw that, I was like, what? Like, hold on. There's something really important about the Sabbath. And I began to search and explore what that means. Now, if you're like me, you hear the Sabbath, and you're probably thinking either, like, that's a Jewish thing, <laughs> or... Um, like, isn't that what we're doing right now? And um, yes and no. Um, I think it's really, you know, when we went into that moment of silence, right? Was that awkward for anyone? Be honest. Does everyone feel really comfortable about how, how quiet it was? Nothing on the inside, perfect peace in, in front of, inside of everyone? Everyone's mind was just in perfect peace. I don't believe any of you. You're all full of it. We don't lie in church. When we're quiet, we become aware very quickly of the noise of our soul. I was actually going to start, when I preached on the Sabbath, I haven't even started the message yet. This is all precursing, <laughs> trying to tie in what just happened. When I preached on the Sabbath, um, I actually, it was Sunday night, and so I made all the millennials show me their phone, because our Sunday night is like hardcore millennial. And I said, now put it under your seat. And they were like, <gasps> you could hear like the gasp. I had them close their eyes. I'm not going to do it now because we just literally did it in worship. And I asked them a question. I said, in the silence, we're going to sit here for a bit. I want to ask you, how is your soul? We just worshiped God for an hour. We sat in the presence of God. But how's the inside you? Are you at peace? Or you got a whole lot of noise going on on the inside, a whole lot of feelings that you've been spending a lot of time and energy medicating or stuffing. What is really going on in the inside of you? We have to stop and slow down to become aware of our soul. And once we become aware of our soul, we have to linger to allow God to meet us there as the lover of our soul. This is what worries me about being an encounter-focused community is that the place that's designed as overflow can unintentionally become an oasis if we don't tend to our soul. Does that make sense? This corporate gathering is not intended to be your, oh, thank God, thank God I had the prayer room, thank God, thank God I went to church Sunday. Man, I just got so filled up. Then you come back, oh, thank God, this place still exists. No, this corporate gathering is meant to be overflow, where we come together overflowing, spilling over of the presence of God, the well that's been dug every single day throughout the week, because corporately when it's overflow, we can go places in God that we actually can't go alone. But there are places that we must go alone in God to go there corporately. Does that make sense? I'm all over. If you haven't noticed already, my messages are like an Easter egg hunt. You just take one, put it in your basket, 
if you walk past a couple, it's fine. You didn't need them. You're good. Um, and so, so we have to slow down long enough to allow the noise of our soul to come up and out of us. And God, in his mercy, sanctified and made holy time in the Sabbath. He gave us what we refer in my family as a Christmas every single week that's designed to completely unplug, stop, rest, enjoy, but also become aware, okay, what's going on? What's going on in the inside of me? Because if you get rid of, if you ditch your phone for 24 hours, you don't watch Netflix, you know? If you really um, intentionally quiet yourself before God and with the people that are dearest to you, you'll become very aware of what's going on on the inside of you. Um, so I think what concerns me a lot about our culture is that not only is there this crazy pace that we are being asked to run, you know, achieve more, do more, buy more, get prettier, thinner, you know, get a bigger house, get a big, bigger paycheck, better title, corner office, whatever it is, um, a platform to preach, you know, I don't, I don't know, whatever your vice is. Um, we're, we're constantly bombarded with this pressure to achieve, to become, to do more. But we're also being handed in an unprecedented way distraction. This thing. I love, hate this thing. It is so convenient, but it is so deadly. It's, it's technology is in our face in such an extreme way that we can completely numb out on our hauling it to wherever we think that we need to go. Um, and it concerns me. I think a generate, uh, honestly, as I'm, I'm, I can't tell if I'm barely a millennial, like by like a couple months or if I'm, I don't know if I am or not. I don't know exactly where the lines fall, but I'm like this. I got one foot in each. So I get it a little bit, but then I'm also like, wait, what? How do you download the app? I don't get it. Um, and so, but I am like deeply, deeply concerned about the church because it is way too easy to download a podcast and listen, to, like stuff your face full of sermons and get a whole lot of information, get real puffed up, be able to sit in a gathering like this and talk such rich, deep revelation that's not yours. To, to, to put a YouTube worship video on to numb the soul instead of actually sitting in the anguish of what's really going on to meet with God yourself. I'm really concerned that it is becoming so hard to actually wait on God that, this is heavy, but that we run the risk of thinking, of thinking that we know him, but we just really know Christian culture really well. And I am so zealous for people to know God as I'm zealous to know him myself. But it requires slowing down and stopping. Um, we're going to be in a couple. We're going to be a couple of scriptures. I think the good news is that in Matthew 11, Jesus Himself said, "Come to me. Come to me. Not come to a teaching about me. Not come to a song about me. Not come to a prayer meeting about me. Not that those things are bad. Hear me. I, I'm like." I'm in ministry. I work in a room. Like, I love it. But I, I feel like this plumb line thing in me where I'm like, I got to get real. And so if it offends you, you can confront me afterwards. I'll be open to it. But we've got to heed the call, come to me. If you're weary and you're tired, come to me. I'll give you rest. My way is easy. My burden is light. My way is easy. His way of life is easy. The rhythm that he asks us to walk in is easy. The pace that he would have us walk in is easy. The things that he would ask us to do, his burdens are light. He's easy to please. Come to me. Sometimes 
the slowing down and the stopping is, makes it becoming a little challenging. I want to look at three ways that Jesus slowed down. Um, Mark 5. Mark 5, verse 21. This is going to be a familiar story. We're going to read the whole little bit of it. Um, but I'm going to point out something in it that I didn't, I had never seen before, and maybe you haven't either. Um, so verse 21, Mark 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, but was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about to the crowd and said, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, do you see this crowd pressing around you? And yet you're like, who touched me? I love, I love, I'm a little snarky in my brain. And so I love when I read, like the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, like, duh, look, you're in a crowd. I'm like, I would say something like that. And his disciples said to him, oh, I just read that part. Okay. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay, so in talking about slowing down, I just read the story of the woman with blood, which maybe you're like, I don't get how those two relate. Um, we're familiar with that story, right? We're familiar with the story of the woman with the discharge of blood, touched his garments and was made whole. But we often neglect to remember how that story began. If you have children in this room, put yourself in this position. You have a 12-year-old daughter who is dying. And you have confidence that if this man who claims to be the Messiah, if he comes and lays hands on her, she will be made well. You are desperate because there is no, there's nothing else to do. You're facing your, your child's death or the Messiah's got to come, and he agrees to come, you're like, let's go. Like, this is life or death. This is urgent, right? Like, come on, Jesus. Like, jump on my back. I'll hightail it. We'll piggyback back to my house. And so you're walking with Jesus. He's following you back to the house, and all of a sudden in this huge crowd, he just stops and goes, who touched me? Could you imagine being the dad in that scenario? You'd be like, who freaking cares who touched you? My daughter's dying. Like, my daughter is dying. Hurry up. This is urgent. But see, Jesus was not concerned with what seemed urgent. Within himself, at rest, slowed down, present to God, heeding the voice of his father, he knew what the father was doing. And that's the only thing that he did. And in that moment, the father healed a woman who touched his garments. And so he honored that. Now, let's see how the story ends, though. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Can you imagine? And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, 
which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So I wanted to say that the, the, the inconvenience of Jesus slowing down in this story still resulted in the breakthrough for the family, right? Which is good. So I just wanted you to see that. I will also just wanted to tell you, Talitha Coombe, can I just nerd out for a minute? I know Jeremy likes to use that term too, nerd out. Um, <clears throat> but Talitha Coombe, it's like, um, do you ever sometimes struggle? I, I came from like a religious background, which is why I got really rebellious. And now I feel like I finally got healed from both. Thank you, Jesus. But um, still sometimes in my religious upbringing, I can hear things like when Jesus said to her, little girl, arise, I can kind of hear him be like, little girl, arise. You know, like, so unpersonal. Get up, girl. Live, you know. Um, you know what I mean? Like, he can just, like, get up, live. Like, it's just kind of, like, barky. That, that, that term, Talitha Kum, do you know what it means? It's a term of endearment. It's like sweetheart. When I asked the Lord, I said, could you give me a modern-day equivalent for Talitha? And he said, baby girl baby girl, get up. Isn't that sweet of God? I just wanted to tell you that. There's two other places that um, Jesus slowed down. One is uh, Luke 10. And we won't read it for time, but it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you have priests that pass by this man who had been robbed and beaten, left for dead. Priests, right? People with power, people with influence, the teachers of Israel, right? Then you had Levites come, and they did the same thing, walked right past the dude. Levites, the minstrels, the musicians, the ones that were supposed to minister to God on behalf of the people, but in our context, the people on stage, right, passed by. And then a Samaritan who's basically like, you know, Osama bin Laden or Donald Trump, depending on your political views, you know, it's like the person that you're like, what? You know, I don't know. I don't know where, maybe I shouldn't have said the Trump thing, my bad. It's like... <laughs> I'm in, I'm in the suburbs. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just myself. Again, you can confront me afterwards. Oh, gosh. I'm going to get an email about that one, aren't I? I know I am. Anyway. Shoot. Okay. Um, anyway, so a Samaritan, the person that people didn't like, walks by, and he slowed down. He saw the man. He not only saw, slowed down long enough to be able to see that man and, and, and care for him in the moment, but actually went to great lengths to slow down, to take him to an end, stayed there for two days out of love for this man. See, this is the thing. This is why I think the Sabbath is important, is because rest is imperative to love. If God is love and God is at rest, then love cannot flow out of anything but a vessel at rest. If we are not at rest, love is really hard. You see that in the Ten Commandments. The first three are about God, right? The first three have to deal with our interaction and, and our obedience to God. The last five, no, six, have to deal with our, um, not good at math, our interactions with man, with one another. And smack dab in the middle is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? Because there's something about Sabbath that's a heaven-on-earth reality. There's something about Sabbath that actually positions us to receive the rest of God, to then love God, but actually from that place of loving God, walk out loving our neighbor. And yet it's the one commandment of the ten that we don't really listen to or obey. Right? Interesting to me. Um, the Sabbath predates the law. It predates the Ten Commandments, like I mentioned before. The Sabbath was actually in the creation account. The seventh day God rested and he made it holy. The Sabbath is the first thing that God made holy, which is so amazing. I read a book um, by Abraham Heschel. He wrote it in the 50s. He's a Jewish man. He was not Messianic. He was Jewish. Uh, he was an immigrant to America from, um, I think, I can't remember exactly, I can't remember where, a European country, but he immigrated to escape persecution, obviously, during World War II. 
and he saw so many of his Jewish friends were um, abandoning the practices as, as Jews because they were trying to acclimate to life in America. And he wrote this really little book on Sabbath that I could not recommend more. It's written the way Sabbath feels when you start to practice it. But in that, he makes mention that that for, for Jewish people, which we are grafted into and came from, right? For Jewish people, God is not found in a temple or tabernacle. He's not found in a graven image or a likeness of anything. God is found in time. Times and seasons and festivals and years of jubilee. God made time holy. It's in time that we meet with God. It's not in things. It's not in spaces. It's not in rooms. It's in time. Right? And so when I started to get this, I was like, Oh my gosh, God has prescribed this weekly rhythm that has grace associated with it because it came from God to meet with him, to recharge in my own humanity, but also in practicing this one day, I've found that all six days look different. That in stopping, because the Sabbath literally just means to stop. Sabbath means to stop. So one day you stop. This one day of stopping actually has helped me slow down six days of the week. I was at Walgreens, and um, I met uh, a woman outside of a Walgreens, um, and I was in a hurry. I was in a a big hurry. Um, But I'd begun practicing the Sabbath, and shockingly to me, because I know me, I ended up staying with this woman, praying with this woman, shopping for this woman. I probably spent an hour with this woman, and I didn't even realize what was happening until afterwards I thought, oh my gosh, the Sabbath is working. I literally just found myself conformed in love. I was at rest. She was not. Therefore, I have something to offer you. It was a no-brainer. And that kind of thing, historically, is so hard for me. (laughs) Like, I'm not one of those people that's like, hey, let me pray for you. Let's talk. Come here. Right right here. (laughs) Like, I'm not that person at all. I'm like, I got to be someplace, and I have 20 meetings today and emails from two weeks ago that I still haven't responded to, so I got to go. You know, like, that's my natural temperament. But I've been learning to slow down. Uh, It's been really, really amazing. Um, The Sabbath is referred to as a gift and a command. Uh, In Exodus um, 16, it's referred to as a gift. The Lord God gave you the Sabbath. It's a gift. Why? Because for one day, you have permission to stop. You actually have divine ordinance to do so. That for 24 hours, you have divine permission to not work. Not work in the yard, not clean your house, not check your bank account. You have one day a week where God has given you divine permission and ordinance to stop. And not just to stop, but to do things that make your soul come alive. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's a beautiful gift. But it's also a command because what we find out is that once we start to practice the Sabbath, the Sabbath isn't so easy at the start because the stopping becomes a little uncomfortable, right? Um, So we'll get there in a second. Um, Really, the Sabbath is a day to cultivate gratitude. Think about it. If you're not mindful, if you're not at rest, if you're not present, um, it's really hard to be grateful, just like it's really hard to love. Um, I want to tell you, before I was in in ministry, I was a hairstylist. And uh, I will not cut your hair if you ask me to. So, Um, but I had, I had, I had these clients. I had these clients, and um, they were both pastors um, from Oklahoma. She would drive down uh, several times a month, actually, for me to do her hair. Because in the denomination that they were a part of, um, women couldn't cut their hair, dye their hair, wear any makeup or anything like that. But she obviously was being sneaky and would drive like three hours to Dallas for me to do her hair. I had to wash it after coloring it five times to make sure no, no trace of smell of chemicals was in her hair. Five times. Um, when I cut it, I couldn't cut it clean. I mean, it was like 
like still really long, you know? <laughs> like it was a really long hair, but I couldn't just cut it because it couldn't look cut. I'd have to like kind of cut it. It was really weird. All the while, her husband would be outside of the church chain-smoking cigarettes and pa like pacing in front of the church. I mean, in front of the salon. And at that time, I wasn't a Christian. I hated Christians. I was PO'd at God. And yet, they would come in, her secrecy, her soul unrest, clearly his anxiety, chain-smoking and pacing like crazy. I've never seen someone down that many cigarettes in an hour and a half. Like, I don't even, I'm like, wow. Um, and, um, and yet, while scrolling Facebook on her phone, she would occasionally, from time to time, at an appointment, look up at me and goes, <laughs> would say to me in a really thick accent, young man, do you know the Lord? I just tell her yes, because I was like, I'm not going to go down that road with her. But at that time, their unrest and pace of life preached to me about what Christians were like. His chain smoking, his frantic pacing, her hiddenness, her unrest, her scrolling Facebook, this, and then to somehow ask me if I knew God, like nothing about that was attractive to me. It only affirmed what I believed is that Christians were liars and, you know, hypocrites and um, just bent on making life really miserable for people like me. But I had a, another client that came in, and her name was Naomi. And she was a big black lady. And um, she was so beautiful. And her face, like, glowed. And she would walk in, <laughs> like really slow. Like that. And your face would just shine. And so sometimes I'd be running behind, you know, for whatever reason, and I'd come out and be like, hey, Naomi, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm running about 10 minutes behind, grab a drink or whatever. And she would just sit there and she'd be like, oh, baby, I'm in no rush. <laughs> and I was like, good, because I am. You know, I'm like scrambling, baby. I'm in no hurry. That's what she'd always say. Baby, I'm in no hurry. Um, and so she, you know, finally I'd come back out, and I'm like, okay, Naomi, let's go. You know, I'm running behind, and I'm like, let's get started. And she'd get up, and she'd just walk. Not proud, okay? She wasn't proud. She was just calm. She would sit down in my chair, and we'd talk about what we're going to do, and then she'd just look, me, look in the mirror. You know, I'm standing behind her. And she'd go, baby, how's your heart doing? And I would be like, Oh, it's great. It's so good. How are you doing? Are you dating anybody? Let's talk about you. You know, that was like my initial, like, let's talk about you kind of thing. Um, but over time, I found that Naomi was present enough to actually ask questions that she wanted to know the answers to, that she was actually at peace with God enough um, that even though I knew she was a Christian, she was vocal about being a Christian, she was present and at peace enough with God, at rest in her own soul, with him that she could actually be a safe place for me um, to talk about how I had walked away from the church. And I told her about how I had not done, or how I had done drugs for the first time. I mean, she became, in her kindness and rest, Jesus to me in a season that I did not like Jesus very much, right? I wouldn't talk to Jesus, but I could talk to Naomi because Naomi looked like Jesus. I just didn't know that yet. <clears throat> I want to be mindful of time. There's more to that story, but essentially she asked me a question one time. I um, had just been cheated on, which was the first time that had ever happened in a relationship that I was in, and told her, you know, what had happened. And her response to me was, um, she's hurt ears, like eyes welled up. And she could have used this as her like evangelistic moment, right? Like, well, didn't that hurt your heart so much? See, don't you want to be free from that lifestyle, Kevin? She could have done that, right? She didn't do that, though. She was at rest enough to actually enter in with empathy. And her eyes welled up, and she goes, baby, that's got to hurt. And I just broke down sobbing. And it was this holy encounter with God through Naomi that actually began the beginnings of a change and a course direction in my life because she looked at me after I cried for a bit and she was like, Kevin, 
do you believe that you deserve to be treated that way? And to be honest with you, I knew the answer somehow was yes. I knew what had happened was wrong, but somehow that I did deserve that. I did, because something was broken in me. And how do I even allow that to happen? What am I even doing? What have I sold my life out for? Like, what is going on? That one question from a woman at rest began a big turn for me. Like I said, love flows easily through a vessel at rest. Okay, so the Sabbath, the Sabbath um, is a day, a 24-hour period of time that is geared towards gratitude, not working, enjoying life, and spending time with God. I, I'm going to get you out of here ASAP, but I just want to provoke you and inspire you by telling you a little bit about my, our, our Sabbath as a family. The Sabbath, <clears throat> first off, we unplug our phones. Our phones are off. It was miserable at first, but let me tell you, 24 hours without your phone is awesome when you start to get used to it. It's amazing. You are undistracted. You are totally present. Like, no, like the world could be blowing up, but you were none the wiser. It's so good. It's so good. But we literally um, unplug our phones. What's been interesting is that us, me doing that as the campus pastor in Dallas has effectively forced a lot of the staff, they, they can't work on Fridays either because they're not going to get any response from me. So I'm creating rest for them. Great. Um, because we could easily go seven days a week. We already go six because we do services on Saturdays too. So, I mean, we work hard. That day is important. Um, right, CJ? CJ knows. It's hard. So unplug the phone. We, um, we don't do any technology. Uh, we go completely unplugged. It'd be really easy because the Sabbath is not just a day to veg, right? It's not, just a, it's not your day. It's the Lord's day, right? And so it's actually a day consecrated, made holy by him, for him. But when we make it for him, we get to do things that we, we love too. So we unplug. We don't do any screen time. We've maybe occasionally done a little bit of screen time, like we'll go to a movie or something sometimes. But um, as we've practiced it more and more, we've actually cut a lot of that stuff out. Um, we don't cook. In, the, in, in our house, I'm the cook. <laughs> My wife does not cook. <laughs> okay, And so I don't cook on the Sabbath. We go, and um, the night before, Thursday night, I get some really good cheese, olives, um, meats. Uh, if, this, if you're over 21, this does not make you stumble or sin. Uh, we get a good uh, bottle of wine, and we drink wine, and we just kind of munch throughout the day, this big, like, charcuterie board spread that's just laid out on the table. We, do, we go for long walks. We do these things together as a family. We enjoy, we connect as a family. We talk about the highlights of our week. Um, we don't talk about the heavy stuff. It's just one day to not talk about that hard stuff. We just talk about what's good, and we practice gratitude. For me, I'm an introvert, so I spend a lot of time reading. I go for long walks with the Lord. I go on prayer walks. I sit in our backyard, and I commune with the Lord. Um, I had an amazing experience not too long ago in a Sabbath where the Lord just began to teach me about unity in the Spirit um, because of the way the birds were flying. There was no leader among them, but they were carried by the wind of the Spirit in perfect unison uh, in this dance. And he spoke to me about leadership in submission to the Spirit in unity with him and in unity with and submission to one another. I would have missed that if I was on my phone. But I got this amazing parabolic, you know, little moment with him that maybe uh, I'll share, you know, and sometime down the road. But um, it's a day to do things that make your soul come alive. Not like um, one of my old pastors said a long time ago, um, find the things that make your soul, your affections, your heart for Jesus grow and fill your life with them. If it's dance, where, where, yeah, right here, you were dancing just over here. I'm like, if it's dance, dance. If it's painting, paint. If it's music, sing. If it's, you know, golf, go play golf on Sabbath. I don't know. Like if it makes your heart come alive to God, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, it just is making your soul more aware of him, right? Um, but then it's also, um, it's also this time just to be with family, to connect with the people that you love. If you're single, it's a day to get with like some of your closest friends. And just maybe you spend the first half of the day alone with God, but then you get together 
and you make a communal meal and you share together about what God's done for you that week. You celebrate one another and you, you enter into gratitude and you pray and you worship. I don't know what the Sabbath um, could look like for you, but I am convinced and growing more convinced as we've practiced it as a family that it has become a lifeline. It has changed my family. It has changed me. Um, it has been a huge proponent in shaping the love and character of Jesus in me. And so I want to invite you to consider what would the Sabbath look like for you? Maybe, maybe taking one day, consecrating it as a family to the Lord would require a reevaluation of priorities. But does your kid really need to be in that umpteenth program or that new sports deal? Really? I don't know. Do you really need to make that next business deal? Like, what I've found, honestly, is because he sanctified time and made it holy, as I've honored the holiness of that day, because it's holy whether you make it holy or not. You're entering into its holiness. You're not making it holy by practicing it, because he made it holy, right? So you enter into that holiness. It's the same principle as tithing, that when you give of your first fruits, that little batch blesses the lump. What tithing is for our finances, Sabbath is for our time. It blesses our time. We become incredibly more efficient. Things take less time. You've noticed, seriously, I've started to actually pay attention. I'm on hold. Like when I, I was on, I had to call um, the tax appraiser people. And, you know, you're going to be on hold. It's like government. You're going to be on hold for like 20 minutes at least. I swear to you, it was like, Hi, my name is Alicia. How can I? And I was like, whoa, my gosh, my time is being sanctified. You know, he really blesses your time when you honor the time that he's set aside um, to seek him um, and to allow your soul to be present before him so that he can meet you there. Um, yeah, so... I want to pray. There's not going to be like a ministry. We're not going to impart Sabbath to you, you know, or like whatever. We can't do that. But I, I really, I would encourage you if you're married in the room, um, this week, talk with your spouse. What would it look like? Or maybe you're like, okay, that's cool, whatever. Maybe just pray for revelation. Lord, would you give us revelation on this? Like if, if it, there's something good in it, we want it. Um, but if you're provoked at all, you're like, oh, we used to do that, but now life has gotten really crazy and busy. Man, we, we need to reevaluate that again. What would that look like? Um, I encourage you to spend some time praying with your spouse. Uh, what would it look like for you to begin to step in the direction of honoring the Sabbath? What kind of things would God have you fill that day with, but also take away from your day um, so that you can give it to him? And if you're single, you know, um, get with some, some folks that are your closest friends and say, hey, let's just experiment with this. Let's just try to, you know, get together every Saturday or Friday or whatever and, you know, around two o'clock two and just celebrate God together and, um, and do so without, you know, sitting in a group all doing this. You know, right? It's so weird how people do that these days. Um, so, Father, I, I thank you for rest. I thank you, God. I thank you for this beautiful gift that you've given us. I thank you that the Sabbath is like a weed barrier and a gutter system for our heart. We thank you, Lord, that our souls are important to you, that what we feel what we desire, what we long for. These things matter to you. You're the lover of our soul. I'm so aware of your jealousy to meet us in those deep places on the inside. And so, and at the same time, your desire as husband, as bridegroom, to give such lavish, beautiful gifts on that day as well, to make this day like, a, a weekly Christmas or a weekly little honeymoon with Jesus, whatever, that you'd so desire um, for us to look different in how we spend our time, how we live our lives. The Sabbath really is, it's a declaration of our trust in you. That our livelihood and provision doesn't come from our own hands. That our time isn't our own. It's not ours to choose what we do with it and what we don't. Time is a gift from you. And so we just ask you 
Spirit of God, you are the one hovering above the waters that were created. You're the one that fills that Sabbath time. And would you give us revelation? Would you speak to us about what it would look like to step into obedience to this gift and command, to rethink our weeks differently and our priorities differently? Would you bless us with revelation of the Sabbath that we would enter in to find rest from our souls, to experience that reality in Matthew 11? Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, Sabbath, Sabbath, and find that my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, I'm easy to please. And so we say yes to what we don't fully know or understand, but we are expectant that you'll teach us. And so I bless um, my brothers, my sisters, this family in Frisco um, to experience rest in your presence, even this week, like they've not known before. And in that, become vessels of love like they've not seen as well. In the name of Jesus.